Morning listeners, uh, welcome to 3CR, 855 AM dial, and this is Green Left Radio. Um, at the station we have Jacob and Lalita, and we have a jam-packed program today with three interviews and news from Green Left Weekly newspaper. So, morning Jacob, yeah. how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, I guess maybe it could be a good opportunity to maybe start discussion um, the federal budget is oh going God. to in on next Tuesday, as far as I know. Um, for unfortunately, I'm not sure what you could say this, what the reaction should be. Um, fortunately, Bad. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, we've, we've got an early taste of what is going to come into the federal budget, and that is regarding um, higher education. Yes. So um, the changes to higher education will include um, one of the more starting off, there's going to be cuts to higher education, um, putting the pressure even more on universities. We're already seeing this trend of universities making cuts um, to their staff, casualisation, especially in Murdoch University, Victoria University. Um, even, you know, pretty much I, I would say the majority of universities, you know, are looking towards, you know, streamlining, um, implementation of trimester systems, you know, cutting of senior staff. Um, and it's all part of the, you know, the fact that, you know, it's all linked to the fact that, you know, universities are feeling extra pressure from the lack of federal funding and these cuts are going to, these cuts, if they're legislated, are going to get through. Uh, if they get through, um, they'll make it even worse. Um, but For me, the biggest issue is um, students. I mean, they already have problems with the fact that, um, you know, students already have massive amount of debt mm. as it is. And then look at the prospect of them coming out, getting a job, and now they've got to pay back the debt at earlier, it's 42000 as opposed to 50 odd. And on the top of that, you know, housing prices are massive, rent is very high. It's like suffocating, it's like strangling the young people at the throat and saying, well, whichever way you turn, we're going to get you. Well, yeah, that's um, for listeners who are probably not aware yet. Um, one of the proposed changes is they get a lower the hex threshold um, to, I think, from 46,000 to well, no, it was, it was 50 something. Yeah, well, so it's brought down to 42, yeah. I think. And um, but and the and so basically the students, um, well, graduate students, at least I think over 200,000 um, graduate students will be forced to pay back their debt um, at an earlier rate than before. And also that these debts are being um, they are being charged to interest mm. as well. So which means every year the debt gets larger. Um, as long as the students are unable to pay, the debt will grow. Mm. Um, and given the fact that more and more the social situation is such that jobs are going to be more and more rare and technology coming in. In fact, I read a report somewhere that in the next 20 years or so, about five, half a million jobs are, are going to disappear. And I'm just wondering what sort of planning um, this government has, or even the Labour Party for that matter, or even the Greens, in relation to that change, massive change that's going to occur. There's no long-term planning in terms of how you're going to support the young people through this very difficult process where jobs are going to be scarce and you have housing crisis, you've got massive debts by people. Um, 
you know, it, it just doesn't look like a feasible, a manageable situation at all for mm-hmm. anyone, any generation, really. Well, I think um, one of the one of the rationales that you know, as part of the propaganda that the government is giving us is. You know, we need to, you know, restore the budget back to surplus. Which is a real... Um, despite the fact this is... The irony of this is, you know, they're all too keen to give corporations tax cuts um, and continue to give, you know, millions or billions of, of subsidies to the mining industry. Um, you, know, if, you know, we could easily, I think, you know, afford to give, you know, free education to everyone. Um, just have to think about, you know... Um, having a reasonable high corporate tax rate. It's not even that. It's it's the other concept that they pursue, regardless of how many times, how many experts um, have consistently said that the trickle-down theory doesn't work. You pay the rich to help supposedly create jobs for the unemployed. It hasn't worked. In decades and decades, it's been not just research-wise, in practical terms, has not worked. Because as soon as the corporations, because of the capital system, it can survive only if it's making profits. So every year they've got to make cuts to meet whatever profit um, target they have. So they, the only way they can make profits is by exploiting people, exploiting people's labor. Therefore, they will invariably cut workers because they bring in new technology. And as the, as the um, workforce is being replaced by technology, generally it's a good thing, but people have to, short, have to have shorter working hours. Like I think Sweden is having a six-hour working day. In other words, people still have a job with full pay. At the same time, they're not working as much, um, and people are able to pay back debts. It's just a no-win situation at the moment, the way I see it. But anyway, so it's just disastrous. Going on to some other news, this important kind of public announcement. Um, listeners probably are aware of the one-week strike by the Fairfax workers. Yes. Um, so basically, this is kind of a call out to, you know, basically do not view, share or um, read Fairfax for the next week or so because, you know... Don't buy. Yeah, <laughs> don't, um, doing so will be akin to um, costing the picket line and these workers, and we must be standing with these workers. Absolutely. Um, as much as we disagree with the news they put out, we still need to support yeah. the workers. Interesting <laughs> enough, I've, um, I felt um, it feels weird that I have not looked at any Fairfax articles for the past two days. Like, it's like, I'm gonna, I wonder how it's going to feel after a week. And... Um, because on social media, most of my friends are pretty activist savvy. I haven't really seen any sh- people sharing articles. <laughs> so it's just very, a very bizarre, I'm living like a Fairfax-free world um, right now. <laughs> yep, that's one um, lot of workers. And then we've got the Murray Goulburn strike that's going on um, that has just struck the farmers, especially the milk industry. Um, they're closing three locations of the investment and that too is towards Rochester Way um, so that still has to be played out see what the fallout's going to be and how those workers are going to be supported what's going to happen to the milk industry and so on maybe we should just take, you know, consume less dairy then but that might help this is one of the allergical <laughs> foods in the world anyway that's another one um, now we should actually look at um, the latest. Do you want to look at Trump before we go on to the interview? 
Well, Trump has made some overtures to South Korea, which which is what the interview is going to be all about. Um, about he said something like Kim Jong Un is a nice person or, or respectable person, and they're going to have or try and arrange a meeting, which is a, a, a complete turnaround from the aggressive stance they had before. But I don't think the military um, is easing off, but I. Somehow, I, I think that some someone's got to him and said, "Look, you're going to have a third world war. Therefore, soften your stance on on um, North Korea because the first target will be South Korea, and even China has has intervened in this in this um, you know horrible situation and said, "Look, don't start a war because it's going to affect China. China and South Korea are going to be the first victims of any war that's been con- that's going to be conducted against South Korea." But we have. Um, and interviewed someone to talk about it in more detail. I think just an interesting um, personal experience and observation. Um, when I was at um, Melbourne Central, um, when you're at the Melbourne Central train station, they play Sky News 24-7. And, you know, Sky News is like the ultimate in kind of Murdoch um, media. Like, it's pretty much, yeah, it's, it's, it's an owned Murdoch channel, probably, the wor- probably one of the worst news stations you could view, and, you know, they have that playing permanently um, on the screens in Melbourne Central Station while you're waiting for your train. And something I noticed quite interesting, um, is they had some footage of North Korea, and basically it was very weird because there was no there was no sound, but all it showed was, like, shots, like photos of Kim Jong-un, on, um, you know, doing weapons testing in um, North Korea, and there's, like... No sound, but it was just shots of him of North Korea doing weapons testing. I think what I think that um, what they're actually deliberately trying to do is they're trying to create this sort of existential fear around North Korea because you know North Korea is doing is testing out weapons, but of course I think it's a bit hypocritical in a sense because you know the United States does the same thing too yeah. with their military bases, and we aren't showing we aren't seeing shots of the United States um, testing out weapons and. Oh, uh, and the news isn't positioning us to be. Oh, we should be so fearful of the US. It's like, well, because uh, as they are white, they don't have to be feared. They they always do the right thing. Jacob, get yeah. the message. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the other good news, I guess, for the week, is that Westpac um, not supporting Adani, mm. which is an amazing victory for all the um, NGOs that have been conducting and people who marched and all over the country against Adani's investments to. Yep, go on. There's been a new development on that. Yeah, that's right. Yep, um, go so on. So now the new target is going to be Commonwealth. Um, Commonwealth were actually previously kind of saying distancing themselves from Adani, mm. but they never clearly said that they weren't supporting it. Yeah. Um, so they saw this vagueness um, that is going to be the subject of the campaign. So the next protest um, in action that's going to be organised by 350.org and the stop kind of an Adani kind of coalition is um, going to be this Tuesday um, at um, at the West... Well, it's going to start off at the Westpac Bank, um, I think where, which is on Collins Street, and then there's going to be a march to the Commonwealth Bank. So okay, that sounds good. But the, the other developments also, what Adani has done is announce a um, contract with Wayala, the steel mills, 
to um, make the railway lines that's going to go from the Carmichael mines to the Great Barrier Reef or the port where they want to export coal. So it, it means they're setting up in Wyala a, 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 a supporter, uh, which means that those workers who had a very bleak future now actually have a job at least for the for the short term, while they're making this um, railway lines for um, the the Carmichael um, mine transporting of coal. So it, they, they're playing politics, in other words. So they, they're choosing a community that's vulnerable, they're desperate to have, keep their jobs and so on, and keep the mills running. So they've invested in Wyala, which means the whole area there is going to be supporting Adani, uh, the Adani mines, which... It's going to start dividing people and not and, and basically cloud the issue that this this mine is going to kill off the barrier reef. Massive tourism tourism industry is going to be um, affected massively, really. Well, so it's going to be it's, it's going to be it's going to be played out in a very interesting way because they're really playing politics. I think an important point is I think the left has to actually bust this kind of myth that. Adani is, well, you know, Adani is going to create jobs, no doubt, but it's going to only create very temporary jobs. Yep. And, of course, we can we can put forward, you know, renewable kind of alternatives that actually do have more sustainable, they're both more sustainable ecologically, but they also have more sustainable jobs. And well, the unions have taken out because the, the problem is the unions have always fought for jobs, and that relates to membership. Um, they need to, co- to promote renewable energy in relation to jobs as well as membership, as opposed to what they're doing at the moment. So it's quite a, it's becoming more complex and it needs to be unpicked. Not just the left, I think people in general need to get involved because if they allow Adani to win this political battle, uh, it's a real one. It's not, you know, uh, it, 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 something that people imagine. It's something that's going to affect, it's, it's impressing the people of Wyala because they've got jobs. Mm. You know, which means they can pay their debts and so on and so on. And that divides the people who want to fight the coal mine, whether it's the environment movement, whether it's the farmers, whether it's the workers, whether it's, as you say, the left, you know, whatever. The fact remains that generally people have to look at the pawns being moved on the chessboard, really. But anyway, let's go on to the interview we were talking about. Now, I interviewed Norm Sanders, who is um, a former academic, and he used to be um, a Senate member a couple of decades ago from Tasmania. He is very familiar with um, the military situation. He also used to, well, he, he, say, he did say he was a participant in the Korean War in the 1950s, so it's interesting. But... Um, Let's go to the interview, which is only about 15 minutes, and we shall we'll come back. Welcome to 3CR, Norm Sanders. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. And today we're going to talk about your expertise and knowledge about North Korea and the nuclear threat. I read your article on Independent Australia, and maybe we could um, talk about your point of view on the current situation. Okay, well, thanks for having me. I've been... Uh 3CR, you know, has been around for years, and I can remember being on it a long time ago, and I'm glad you guys are still in business and doing a good good job. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, North Korea. Well, the one one thing that really bothers me most about North Korea is not North Korea itself, but it's the fact that it is the present boogeyman. You know, governments like to have somebody that they can get 
people afraid of. So now we're supposed to be afraid of North Korea. And so governments, if they have somebody that's really scaring the populace, can get away with anything. It, it, it disguises all the government's mismanagement and their their blunders. Uh, and they say, well, but we're worried about the North Koreans. Well, in the first place, uh, I don't worry about the North Koreans. The South Koreans don't even worry about the North Koreans. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, so what are we worried about? The nuclear weapons? Well, look, there's a lot of, there's, I think, 14 countries or something have nuclear weapons. Uh, so, you know, here's, look at it from North Korea's standpoint. Here's this tiny little country. Uh, they don't have any natural resources. They try and sell coal to China, and that's about it. The last communist country, really, on the face of the earth, and uh, they feel isolated. And and also, I, I think they are a dictatorship, you know, I mean, <laughs> of, of many years standing. So, you know, they, they were in, inward-looking, and they, they resist any overtures by anybody to get them into the outside world. And they're very suspicious, and they just lash out, and they're constantly making threats, which the South Koreans don't take seriously, but uh, everybody else uses to their own advantage, basically. And you feel that the Turnbull government currently is doing exactly that in conjunction with the U.S. President Donald Trump? Oh, exactly, exactly. I mean, look at look at South, uh, North Korea's actual capacity. They have no ICBMs at all uh, that work. They've never had a successful IC, uh, inter intercontinental ballistic missile launch. They've never had one that worked. Uh, they've never been able to successfully mount one of their atomic bombs to a nuclear or a missile of any kind. Um, they've only had, I think, five underground tests. I think they're going for their sixth one if they, if they have one. And it's one thing to set off an atomic bomb in a controlled environment and these things are huge the way they're 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 making them. Uh, but to try and get one small enough to put it on a missile, and then make the missile not explode like the last one did on their launch uh, just a few days ago, uh, that's a that's that's hard, and it takes a long time, and it takes a lot of expertise and a lot of uh, technology uh, and equipment which they don't seem to have much of. So I'm really not worried about them as a nuclear threat, as as a threat. If they get provoked, I feel that there's a threat to Seoul itself because they have hundreds, if not thousands, of pieces of artillery pointing at Seoul across the border, which is only a few kilometers from the border. That would be the worry about destruction, not a nuclear one, but it's certainly not. <laughs> they haven't got anything that could reach Australia. And frankly, I think that with a limited number of weapons they'll ever have, Australia is just not a target. Uh, you know, but the politicians say, oh, well, we've always had this thing about, the, you know, the invasion from the north, the Oriental, the Chinese or the Vietnamese and North Vietnamese invading Australia. Uh, it's not going to happen. And I think if you turn the map over so that Australia was on top of all these Asian nations, nobody would worry. But you look at a map and say, oh, look at all those people, they're going to come down to Australia and invade us. Well, that's been the attitude forever here. It was, I found it when I first came to this country. I found it ridiculous. But it's, it's part of the psyche.
Mm. You also mentions, uh, mentioned that there's submarine um, launching, missile launching from the submarines also not up to a scratch. Oh, no. That's, that is a really difficult technical maneuver to launch a, a missile from a submarine and get it to actually uh, ignite and go where you want it to go. They tried one, and it went 35 kilometers. Well, it actually didn't. It, it wasn't controlled at all. It kind of went up in the air and fizzled around like a firecracker for a while and fell 35 miles, 35 kilometers away from where it was launched. Um, it takes an awful lot of technology and a lot of know-how and a lot of experience and, in fact, an awful lot of equipment. You have to waste a lot of equipment to, to get these things right, and they don't have the equipment to waste. Mm. And neither the knowledge, you reckon? Well, I don't know who their experts are, but I'll tell you one one thing. And this is from what I've observed of uh, Kim Jong Un. Uh, he doesn't tolerate failure very well. And when that missile went off in, uh, on the the hundredth anniversary, I guess it was, um, and it exploded on launch. You can be sure that those particular missile engineers are not going to be around much longer. They will be punished. Mm. And so, if they're experts, and they, you know, they don't have a lot, awful lot of experts. And every time there's a failure, I think the experts probably the ranks of them get thinner and thinner. Mm. So it's 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 a bit like the weapons of mass destruction fear campaign that was oh, launched yeah. Oh, yeah. in the 90s. Yeah. It, it, so you reckon that's that's where it sits, yeah? Well, I think so. I mean, they certainly they are something that has to we, we have to deal with. But I think we in this day and age we ought to have ways of dealing with people uh, other than threatening them with atomic bombs yes. on either side. And I think. Um, and there have been attempts. You know, there is a joint manufacturing facility between North Korea and South Korea uh, that employs a lot of thousands of people. Um, and there are attempts to try and get North Korea into the, the world community instead of being paranoid and sitting back, but to actually join up. But the United States, of course, does nothing but put sanctions on them. This doesn't make them want to negotiate at all. But I think if the United States, if Trump, oh, my God, don't talk to me about Trump. <laughs> yes, you don't like him very much, do you? Uh, uh, look, he, he's, a, uh, he's a reality, he's a one-man reality show. Hmm. You know? he, he's absolutely outrageous. And he's great television, but, my God, he's the leader of the world. Forget it. But anyway, where was I going? Oh, yeah, if Trump would sit down, I can't imagine this, uh, and, and talk to Kim Jong-un Un. Yeah. as an equal and say, okay, buddy, let's uh, let's work this thing out. Now, what, you, what is your grievance, you know? Well, I'll do I feel like nobody appreciates me, nobody likes me, nobody loves me. Well, we love you. You know, let's, let's get together. What do you got? You got coal? We'll buy some coal. What would you like to do? Would you like to set up some, some manufacturing? Would you like us to set up some manufacturing plants or something or, or whatever, you know? Just to talk about, I mean, Trump is supposed to be a deal maker, correct? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, let's do a deal here. But instead, he just wants to bomb them back to the Stone Age. I think, I think dialogue in this day and age, if we haven't learned anything as a human race, 
I think we should have learned that dialogue is better than bombs any day. Yes, and you have first-hand experience in um, this bombing So in, in the uh, days gone by. Um, I was reading another article on this where in the 1950s it was, it was it's always referred to as the uh, Korean War. Yeah. Um, the U.S. simply dropped massive amounts of bombs, oh. and it, it was about 32 tons of napalm, according to a report. Oh, I mean, napalm. Really. That was such a horrible thing. And, yeah. and, you, and, and you know, they, they killed like 20% of the population. So that's a history there as well um, that has created this hatred uh, of the North Koreans of... Um, the U.S., uh, and, and you, you go from there, uh, and the insular um, mentality yeah. develops because you have, to be, you have to defend yourself. Well, that, that's right, and, and they, uh, they, of course, uh, they would have lost that war except for the Chinese who came to their aid and uh, gave them many, many troops and a lot of tec- uh, technical and logistical support. And, uh, yes, napalm, what a terrible thing, jellied gasoline. Mm. And uh, you drop it out of an airplane, and it ignites, and it sticks to everything, and it's still burning. I don't know if you ever saw that picture of that little Vietnamese yes, girl. Yes, that's a very, very notorious, yes. uh, I didn't want to say and famous. It's such yes. a horrible weapon. It's, it's just, just terrible. And, and the bombing. But it was a horrible war on both sides because I had a lot of friends who went over there. Mm. I, I was draft, draft age at that time, and I joined the Air Force because I didn't mm. want to get into the into Korea. I didn't want, and I was in in the United States all that time. We never got sent to Korea, which I was quite happy about. But I had friends who died over there, and you know it would get forty below zero or, or minus forty. Uh, centigrade in the winters. It's brutally cold. Hmm. And, and it, 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 it was just a, a horrible war in all respects in, in terms of the loss of lives, the loss of uh, everything. The, the agricultural land was destroyed. Uh, it was just a, a horrible thing and it never really ended. You know, there's, it's never, never been a peace treaty signed yet. There's still that, uh, demilitarized zone with armed troops on both sides of it. Yes, it, it actually talked, this article I was referring to talks about the fact that the United States bombed everything that moved in North Korea, every yeah. brick standing on the top of another. After yeah. running low on urban targets, U.S. bombers destroyed hydroelectricity, yeah. uh, farms, um, and it, it's just a horror story of how terrible this this war was for the Koreans and it's no wonder it's something that's still in the memory of many Koreans who will be alive today and well it would be mm, the and, and also you know there's there's animosity between the Koreans and the Japanese because of the Japanese occupation of Korea on both both South and North Korea the Japanese had that they were had that under the control for years and years and there's still that uh, long-standing uh, sore that's between the, the Japanese and the Korean, uh, the Korean comfort women. Yes, of course. And that hasn't been settled yet. So the, that's another reason I think the, the Koreans are they feel they've really been hard done by, and they have on both sides, both south and north, actually. The um, 
the other thing was that Pyongyang in 1953 was also uh, almost decimated. It says here 75% of it was destroyed by U.S. bombing. So just just summing up, the destruction was so enormous that it's, it's pretty difficult for the, the Koreans to have it erased from their memory or the history, I guess. Yeah. And... Um, that doesn't help the regime uh, come into the modern world as such. It, it is, has been isolated, partly because of them, partly because the rest of the world, and especially the U.S., which has constantly attacked North Korea for their choice of government, communist, socialist, whatever people want to call it. Um, it's a disastrous situation, and at right now Trump is targeting it and using that that rhetoric everybody uses and has been used many times in, at other junctions at his, uh, times in history against communist countries. So what we have is a standoff in a sense. But I wonder if you, you could perhaps um, from your political experience, uh, you know, give some sort of insight into... Uh, I, I don't really know. I, I, I don't know what the answer to this is. Hmm. It's, it's like the Middle East. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, it's very sad. sad. How do you solve this thing? Uh, I think, as I said before, it's just through dialogue. I think somebody, uh, well, it can't be the North Koreans, but it, but it has to be Trump or his cabinet or somebody opening a, a line of communication that doesn't involve uh, sending bombers over. It really depends on China and Russia. Russia is also uh, on the border of North Korea, you know. Of course. And... Uh, they have always vetoed any anything having to do, as they do in the Middle East now, vetoed anything having to do with uh, Korea, North Korea. But it, it, and China is is starting to realize that its future is <laughs> uh, is involved in trade. It, it, it's not really a communist country anymore. No. It's a very capitalist country, and uh, they don't want to be dragged into any confrontation with anybody. Uh, it would affect their their, their economy and their trading uh, future. So eventually, but I don't know how much pressure they can actually put on the Koreans, to tell you the truth, the North Koreans, um, nor Russia. And what the UN, I don't know what the UN could do about it either. I, I think that somebody, and it has to be the United States, is going to have to start talking with Kim Jong-un. That's all. Mm. That's, the, that's the end of it. That, if he, If they don't, it's going to be a running sore, and somebody's going to miscalculate and drop a bomb someplace. Mm. Just seems that everyone needs a, a great big lesson in conflict resolution without violence. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> and haven't we as a human race evolved enough that we can actually do this? Yes. Uh, uh, you know, I would hope so, but yes. I, the, the signs are not propitious. No, not with Trump at the helm, I guess. Anyway, no. thank you very much, uh, Noam. That's very kind of you to share your experiences with us and um, yep. giving us your opinions. Okay, nice talking to you. Thank you. Bye. Okay, see you. Welcome. I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favor. Thank you very much. For progressive people around the world, it's been a hard start to the year. 
Trump is rolling out his racist agenda, inspiring increased racial, religious and gender-based hatred across the globe. It really is time to rally together to fight for a better world. There is power in numbers and there is power in independent, community-run media. Join the swelling number of people fighting back by becoming a member of your radical activist radio station. Show us your love and subscribe to 3CR. Call us on 9419 8377 or pay online 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You've got to remember NAIDOC's a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! And... you got to remember NAIDOC. Welcome back to Green Left uh, Radio on 3CR 8551 AM dial. And... Streaming, streaming live. And we also have a digital um, broadcast these days. And, of course, if you miss any program, you can always catch up on the podcast. Now, moving on to some international news um, on this part of the program. Uh, nothing much has been uh, announced, rather, or discussed in the um, mainstream media by the Palestinians who are on hunger strike. There are 1,500 Palestinian prisoners on hunger strike and they've start, they started that on the 16th of April. And it continues to grow. There's enormous support growing, of course, among the Palestinians. And the main thing is um, they are f- striking for, uh, for freedom and dignity. Of course, Israel considers many of them as um, terrorists. But uh, they, they have been fighting for their freedom for many decades now, so, well, basically since 1948 although often we talk about the 1967 borders to which um, the Hamas movement... It's interesting. Hamas announced that they're happy to um, alter their position in relation to uh, Israel. They, we, we aren't, they, say, they have said that they're not fighting against the Jewish people. They are fighting against the Zionist government. And that has been criticized by the U.S. saying that our, you know, they are playing uh, politics and we, we can't trust Hamas. Uh, and so on and so on. But that battle has to be resolved, otherwise there will never be peace in the Middle East, and that's for sure. America needs to get out of this, um, uh, you know, terribly compromising position it's it's, uh, tangled with in um, Israel. And um, moving on to Brazil, South America, there are more than 35 million people in Brazil who have launched um, one of the biggest general strikes apparently in the history of the country, but really it's the history of the world. Um, you've never seen 35 million workers launch a strike 
against the um, austerity measures that have been announced by the Brazilian government. And so it's, and I, the idea is to make, is not making an action, but getting people to, to the streets and stop, stop all production and services, transform cities into ghost towns, um, according to one of the people involved in it, and it belongs to a federation called Single Federation, Confederation of Workers in the State of Para. And across Brazil, there were many reports of strikes clashing with police who sought to disperse large crowds with tear gas. And this is always the case in every country. The workers take strike action to protect themselves, and the police are brought on, or the military is brought. You know, it's just like thuggery in, in many ways. Um, I just wanted to say that there's an article in uh, the latest Green Left Weekly about North Korea and, uh, you know, the changing position there. And one of the things that I found really significant was in one part of the article it says Pakistan has nuclear weapons and no one says boo about it. And the reality is even Israel has uh, nuclear weapons. Mm. It, it refuses to deny or confirm that it has <laughs> nuclear power. And, you know, it, it sounds funny, but it's, it's really a dangerous uh, um, precedent you can see around the world is such unequal approach to all these things. Mm. One last thing about um, South America before I move on or you, you take over. The um, Venezuelan government has been under enormous pressure uh, from uh, internal uh, right-wing forces and also forces supported by uh, the U.S. And interestingly enough, uh, Eva Morales, who is the Bolivian um, indigenous president has said that in Venezuela there, there is a coup attempt Morales noted about the recent attempts by the US backed right wing opposition to overthrow Venezuela's government the Venezuelan government actually is planning to get out of the, get out of the OAS which stands for Organization of American States and Morales says that the US is using that organization to intervene in, in, in Latin American countries and South American countries and he noted like he, he noted that it looks like the U.S. President Donald Trump wants to take over the world, but the real leaders are the people. He expressed fear and concern over U.S. intervention in Syria and, and Korea as well. So Morales reiterated his support for Venezuela's elected government, arguing that what was really at stake was Venezuela's oil reserves. So people should get the copy to read more details about these issues. Hmm. I guess um, next article I want to sort of cover is, um, this is a country we don't really follow in politics, um, and I'm not even sure if we've actually talked about it or on our, in the history of our program, um, but this is an article printed in Green Left Weekly about um, Hungary, the Hungarian government has been hit by you know, mass protests. For the kind of history of, you know, why this is the case, um, you know, for the past seven years, um, Hungary has been, you know, under control of a right-wing um, regime by, um, led by Viktor um, Orban. Um, and, of course, there's been, there apparently was no mass protests, um, you know, for these past seven years until now. And now they're, every day there are groups written here, there are groups, you know, popping up across Budapest demanding that Orban resign every two to three days. Masses gather to also protest against new undemocratic laws proposed by the ruling Fidesz party in parliament. Um, these two biggest, the two biggest protests happened within just one week. Um, and of course, a lot of the, the central kind of message is, 
you know, um, it's, it's a protest against these undemocratic laws that um, attempt to, I think, from my understanding, um, attack NGOs um, and also cause a huge amount of pressure and uh, unnecessary administration and stigma on human rights and anti-corruption groups. Um, so kind of imagine in Australian context if um, the Turnbull government... Well, they're already doing similar things, all right? Um, you know, yes, thanks. Whistleblower <laughs> laws and so on. There's, this is just a very similar kind of thing um, happening in, um, in um, Hungary. And, um, and this got led to mass protests. Um, but one of the most significant things is the driving force of these protests are the youth. Um, and young people are demanding a country where there is a future with, you know, decent wages, a strong civil society, democracy and an independent education system. And, of course, the youth do not want to stop now. They are, they are strong. And when they are united, Hungary society stands with them. They do not want the protests to stop until the Orban regime resigns. Now, um, we're moving on to another couple of articles, and Jacob's going to talk about a review of an uh, interesting film. Yep. So um, there's this new film that's just um, come out in theatres, um, and Greenleaf Weekly, through Co- in Cultural Descent, has a review of it. Um, basically, it's a, it's, it's called, the film is called... Um, get Out, and it's um, basically it's a, a new horror film that is coming out um, where that revolves around. Um, a it's kind of a, imagine imagine something like um, Guess Who's Coming. If any listeners have watched the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, um, it's basically a movie about um, a couple, an interracial couple, where you know the man um, is black, African American, and the woman is white. And basically, she brings, um, she is introducing her African American boyfriend to her family, who turns out to be basically a bunch of racist psychopaths with weird telekinesis powers. And so, basically, what differentiates this from other horror films is why, whereas a lot of horror films have like an unseen threat, the threat is really racism. Like, it's about, you know, the kind of, it's re- and a very relevant film for the time. So, I definitely recommend that. You know, listeners um, check it out at the cinemas um, because I think it's probably one more, and so re- revering quite well and um, definitely. Yeah, that reminds me of the old me being an oldie. It reminds me of a movie called Guess Who's uh, Coming to Dinner or something. Yeah, that's what I said. Was Port- uh, Simon Portier, wasn't it? It's an old movie. Yeah, two young people in here and they have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, I, I, mentioned, <laughs> I was literally mentioning it in my comparison. So, <laughs> so, yeah. It was such a popular movie in the 70s. It was. Now we've got a guest in the studio. Um, we have Callum Simpson, um, who, who's a student at um, University of Melbourne, who is part of um, a campaign group at University of Melbourne called Lock um, Out Lockheed. Um, and so we will get to have a discussion with him about the campaign. Uh, I guess first kind of question to you, Callum, is what is um, this campaign, um, from my understanding, is about the relationship between that Melbourne University of Melbourne has with a known, well-known weapons manufacturer, Lockheed Martin, and can you explain what this kind of relationship is and what the campaign is directly focusing on. But firstly, welcome to 3CR, Cal. Thank you very much. This is your first time it on radio. It is indeed my first time. Oh, good. Don't feel good nervous. Good morning, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Yes. Good. Good to have you in the studio. It's always <laughs> nice to have live guests. <laughs> anyway, yeah. to, to... So it sort of took a bit of time getting here on the tram, but uh, I, <laughs> maybe the 
phone would have been easier. Public transport. <laughs> Could no, be improved. Nice to have you here. I could yeah. tell you that. Okay. But yes, Melbourne University Lockout Lockheed. It's um, a very exciting campaign uh, that sort of kicked off this year. Uh, last year was announced, and there's a few articles in The Age uh, detailing this. That Not anymore, the on-strike. No, <laughs> no, don't go read it now. Wait until the workers get their, get their fair share. Yes. Um, but a $13 million contract between Lockheed Martin, the weapons manufacturer, the world's largest weapons manufacturer, 80% of which of their profits are weapons, and they still call themselves aeronautical. Oh. Uh, yeah, they're sort of lying through wow. their te- gritted teeth there. Euphemism. Yeah, yes, precisely. And they're also the biggest seller to Western countries such as the US and Israel. And just, you know, for instance, the dropping of the Moab when Afghanistan was with a C-31 Hercules from Lockheed Martin and the Tomahawk missiles were developed by Lockheed Martin. They're they're everywhere. They are huge. And there's a weapons lab which is planned to be constructed, uh, we believe, on the old site of the women's hospital. Uh, oh, gee, what a perfect site. Yeah, eh? yeah, with all, right next to the Carlton Connect initiative about yes. changing things and looking to the future. The ironies prefer. abound, right? <laughs> and this weapons and surveillance lab, which it will um, uh, be sort of a joint operation between Lockheed Martin, Melbourne University's Department of Engineering, and RMIT, a few engineers from there as well, and just the Melbourne community and also the staff and student community at Melbourne University just find this unacceptable. And so yeah, we've... Um, so this is actually uh, being supported by Melbourne Uni, mm. but the students from Melbourne Uni and RMIT are against it. Uh, many. And staff. Obviously. And staff. Is it a particular department that's supporting this, this project or... Because there'll be students involved in this mm. project as well, won't there? Maybe there'll be here. 12 PhDs, as we understand, uh, will be working in the lab. Right. So it's not going to be open to anybody. Okay. But, um, uh, yes, so the building of all these weapons, I don't think, is, you know, I don't think that's merited by 12 PhDs. It's just, that's, right. that's the only thing so far we've figured out there's a trade-off for. Uh, mm. We wonder whether there's more going on. But, to we'll, be. but we'll continue trying to research that and keep our uh, ears to the ground. Yep. So particularly, I guess, one of the, the, the demands of this campaign for um, Lockout Lockheed is that, you know, that Melbourne seize this um, contract. Would that be correct? Yeah, so the two petition demands are, number one, uh, just open transparency about what the contract is. So far we know it exists, how much it's going to cost to build and that's it. We don't really know what anyone's gaining from it or any of the legalities. Uh, so more details is demand number one. Demand number two is just cease contract immediately. Just take this lab away. And um, what, um, what has um, you know what has been kind of like the protests and um, the actions that have been organised, you know, to bring attention to this campaign, you know, to put the pressure on the university to drop this contract. Well, just the other day we had our first action of the campaign. Uh, up until now it's been largely student and staff outreach, trying to raise awareness, get people to information sessions and uh, sort of just build a campaign from the ground up. Um, but on Wednesday, this, this very Wednesday, the May the 3rd, we had a uh, what we termed a theatre of nonviolence. 
essentially we marched on the Raymond Priestley building, the university's administration building, with a large papier-mâché bomb, which we had constructed. Nice one. Yeah, <laughs> with uh, Melbourne University written right on it. And the five of us were dressed in lab coats with University of Melbourne PhD on the back with blood on our coats and blood on our hands. And we carried the bomb into McFarlane Court, just south of the administration building, and placed it down and invited people to die in with us. So we scientists would wander around chalking the outlines of people as they laid on the court on the pavement uh, while solemn music and drums played. And it was uh, it was actually pulled off incredibly well. Oh, and then the students ran in and pulled apart, pulled apart the bomb as carefully as they could because it was full, filled with wire. They don't want to hurt themselves. Mm. Uh, and, but yes, it was a fantastic solemn uh, piece of theatre and got quite a bit of attention. And there certainly was a few people up in the building above us who were looking down. So I think we got the university's attention, but more to come. Yeah, that's interesting because Melbourne is generally known or it's got a reputation of being a very science-based um, university mm. and it's good to see some theatre um, <laughs> and yes. in, in, in the form of protests. It's fantastic. Mm. So, so is it an independent group of students or is, a, is there a, like NUS behind it? Or who's organising all this activity? It's a, it is a group of students. It's... So largely at the moment run out of the Enviro Collective of the Union okay. because most of the student activists at Melbourne University have experience through the Fossil Free Campaign. Oh, good. So, so there's lots of crossover between yes. those two. Yeah. Um, we've also been receiving quite a bit of help from WACA, the Whistleblowers Activist Citizens Alliance. Mm-hmm. They've been um, very helpful in res- terms of resources and have a parallel campaign against the military-industrial complex. And you know, they and other groups like the Sam, are not happy about uh, this lab and they're doing their utmost to stop it as well. So there's a few feeders into the group, uh, but mm. there's weekly meetings at the Union House and we are yes, trying to get... Uh, we're currently student and trying to get staff on board as well. Mm. In terms of that um, staff question, has there been kind of any attempt to reach out to the NTEU? Um, have they come behind the campaign wall or released any sort of supporting statements? Without being checking the minutes of our meetings, I'm unsure. I seem to recall a mention of someone who had a friend of the NTU bringing it up, but mm. I don't recall what came of that. So if not, in future, we better do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's good to get in touch with unions. But I, um, what I see is a, a connection between the military complex Students, like P- there are many PhDs who don't have a job at the stage, so mm. it, it also brings in the job aspect. And you also have the government that is, uh, you know, strongly supporting. They are. Uh, Daniel Andrews, even. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> no. What a disappointment. Well, it's it also forcing the, the universities to look for funding elsewhere, and given the, the new federal cuts, mm. which means the uni- universities are going to be a lot more creative, innovative in looking for funding elsewhere. And this is going to be an excuse the university is going to use. Yes. So you've got a double-prong attack at least from your point of view, one is you, you attack the government for cutting funding and, and then the other one is forcing uh, education institutions to go into coalition with military complex. What, what kind of you know, um, situation does that put students in? What are they supposed to think? You know, it, it, is, is this how you obtain your education by you know, building a military complex? 
Mm. It's a question students need to, to, I guess, think about because it's their future. The world is very much on the brink of a nuclear war between the U.S. and, yeah. and Korea, although it seems to be coming down a little bit. But wh- when, wh- what do you think as a student, you know, I mean, of this political situation, how does that make you feel about the future? Yeah, it's... Uh, Scary. It's, it, it, no, <laughs> it's, it's just... It's, I don't know, f- terribly frustrating. It's like uh, banging your head against the wall against these powerful capitalist forces that yes. consistently uh, prove very powerful. Uh, so you just have to uh, muster the energy to fight and uh, demonstrate. Um, I think that the university will use that excuse. Yes, of, you know, of course. It, it, you know, they haven't really justified much beyond building innovation, etc. Yeah. But um, as the campaign arcs up, they'll have to defend themselves, and that will be find uh, right in the centre. But I think, um, and this stuff came up in the fossil-free campaign, particularly mm. last year, is there's replacements for this kind of investment. You don't need money from fossil fuel companies or or weapons manufacturers. There's the possibility of creating a green economy if you really wanted to invest your money elsewhere, and that's growing. And so why they think that to make uh, ends meet as a university and they need to sell out morally, I don't understand. Mm. Well, I think it's um, one of the factors, I guess, is... You know, it's interesting is the fact that the military receives so much public funding to begin with, although Lockheed Martin is uh, a private company. Um, but then there's a lots of, you know, going back to this discussion about youth, you know, there's a lot of youth, especially in my experience um, of, of what I know from friends I have in the United States, that, you know, there's a you know, dying kind of economy, you know. Um, the only jobs that appear to be available that provide any kind of security uh, is in the military. And, of course... Um, I guess one of the kind of questions um, I want to ask is, um, Lockheed, um, what has been the Lockheed Martin's kind of, you know, PR response? Because, you know, I noticed that Lockheed Martin actually, one of those organisations that is known for a lot of greenwashing um, of their products, they also like to put a lot of good PR. I think they're that one military company that had some ad campaign that was like you know pro lgbt rights and stuff you know mm. kind of, uh, it gets better campaign but of course you know it doesn't really affect the fact that their bombs are killing innocent mm. people i don't think this sort of you know pinkwashing you know absolves them of any kind of crimes and have, have there been kind of this kind of pr kind of campaign being waged by lockheed martin is everywhere I recall my brother this summer went to the National Youth Science Forum. Lockheed Martin was a sponsor. Uh, talking to someone last night, a friend of mine who has a friend who's now studying biology but did an internship at Lockheed Martin. They, 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 they take young physicists and they tell them that they get to blow stuff up and get them all excited and sort of bring them into this morally uh, corrupt... Yeah, mol- yeah. <laughs> abhorrent um, uh, system uh, simply with the excitement of doing some physics that is exciting and they they are everywhere and um, if you go onto the Facebook page you'll see um, some videos of uh, Will Ross uh, who did some great speeches during our action and part of it was he would just take Lockheed Martin's um, uh, Lockheed Martin Australia, which is sort of a corporate entity of them, 
their press releases and intersperse it with this data of how many people they've been killing. And it was a great dissonance there. But it was all the kind of normal stuff of uh, securing Australia, uh, securing jobs and innovating for the future. Mm. Just empty, vague words that hide their true intentions. But you know what I find really scary is that encouraging and supporting young people, this young generation who are looking at climate annihilation to invest in destructive um, industries under the guise of this is a pathway to a job mm. and this is a pathway to a brighter future where you can earn a big living. I find that really frightening. It's a bit like getting people to go around the mines uh, with no safety um, at all in mind. It's, it's just destroying. It's, it's a destructive pathway, whichever angle you take. It's a destruction of the human race and the world, for for that matter. Hmm. And I, I, I just hmm. wonder what young people think about that. Do they even think about it in that way, or do they think, well, well, this is a job. I've got a PhD. I'm going to get a good job. You know, I'm going to be settled for the future. Is that how they think? I just wonder. I don't know if you can really generalize, because I think there are plenty of people who think like that, yep. who just are very job-focused, and I know some of them in Bachelor of Science. Uh, but there's also a lot of... Um, in youth currently, there are still people who are really passionate and dedicated and um, moral. They you know, upstanding in a sense. Mm. And uh, and for the University of Melbourne, which teaches about um, all the all the academic departments, which teach about how there's all these global issues and how how they're the problems caused by capitalism and how there's climate change to invest in fossil fuels and to uh, go into partnerships with weapons manufacturers is astounding. It's it's just, it makes no sense for everything that is taught within the community. Mm. It's the, the administration no longer is in sync with the rest of the community that it's meant to be supporting. Mm. Mm. Um, Will, Will Ross came up with a great line, uh, we will not uh, we will not happily accept this unholy marriage of the public institution with the public threat, mm. which I really liked. Nah, because, sounds good. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we're going running low on time. I guess the last question to ask is, you know, how can people, you know, support and follow your campaign? I'm aware that you probably have a Facebook page. Or yes, something. Yeah. everything has a Facebook page. Yes. <laughs> uh, Lockout Lockheed, L-O-C-K-O-U-T space. L-O-C-K-H-E-E-D. Yep. And there's a f- hashtag and everything. Uh, s- this coming week, uh, we're trying to get up another information session at mm-hmm. Melbourne Uni so people can come along, learn about the military-industrial complex, learn about what we're doing, and get involved. So head onto the Facebook page and follow to learn about that. Mm. Thank you very much, Callum. That Cheers. is very informative, and I am... I am thrilled to see the young people actually doing the right thing. Yes. <laughs> because Some of us are out there, yes. <laughs> well, it can grow. That's, that's a key thing. Mm. If somebody, a group of people started, you, 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 you prod the thinking of other people. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's um, good to see young people taking the lead, and that's what you always want to see. If young people don't lead, you know, the old people disappear. Oh, well, the young people are not concerned. It's their world. It's your future. <laughs> yes. You're not concerned. Why should I be concerned? Mm. That, that's a, you know, it's one position anyway. Mm. But thanks, Callum. Thank you, can, you so much. You can stay or you can, um, you know, join in later on, perhaps in other discussions. We're just going to go into calendar. I'll just mm. play a quick announcement before we do that. Um,
In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the minerals below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. Welcome back to Green Left Radio, 855-1AM, Donald 3CR. Uh, streaming live yeah. on the um, web and um, digital. Yep, so now we have the activist calendar from Green Left Weekly. Um, there's the rally to save our Preston Market tomorrow morning um, at 11am at the Preston Markets. Um, there's a Facebook event for it, so just search up Rally Save Our Preston Market. Um, on Sunday, um, there'll be the Social Alliance May Day Toast, Bad Laws Need to Be Broken, um, at 10am a- 10 at the Resistance Centre, level 5 or 407 Swanson Street in the city. And then ju- there'll be the May Day March from 1pm at the Shrades Hall, although I think it might be starting at 12pm, I'm not sure, I think it is the May Day um, March is actually going to be also a bit of a festival, a, a May Day celebration, so there'll be, you know, I think there'll be rides for children and there'll be other stores from different left groups and so, um, definitely, it's definitely going to be worth going to. Um, now, on Monday, May 8th, there is a film screening of Radio Kobani, which is a documentary about the struggle to rebuild lives after the Syrian border town of Kobani was captured by Islamic State forces in 2014. Filmed over a three-year period, this intimately rendered film follows a 20-year-old Kurdish reporter, Dilavan Kiko, who starts a radio station with friends following the liberation of the town. That's at 8pm, Monday, May 8th. It's $20 or 18 concession at Acme Federation Square in the city. Uh, bookings go to Acme. And on Tuesday, May 9th, there is a protest outside Westpac to don't fund the Adani coal mine. Of course, you'll uh, hopefully know that Westpac is no longer going to fund thermal coal mines. So this will be a celebration of that fact. 
and then a protest against the Commonwealth's support of it. That's at 10 to 11.30 a.m. Westpac, the corner, corner of Collins Street and Swanson Street in the city, is organised by Stop Adani, Melbourne. Okay. Wednesday, the 10th of May, there is a rally to defend and extend public housing, 12 noon at the steps of Parliament House, Spring Street, and, of course, there's a uh, Facebook page. And there's another Act on Climate Dinner and Info Night, Friends of the Earth. Um, It's Act on Climate Campaign hit the ground, um, uh, running uh, for 2017, securing key cross-bench votes needed for the Climate Act to pass Parliament in February. So what's next for the Act on Climate uh, Campaign? So join Friends of the Earth for dinner and info night out. The stakes are high with the Fed supplying breaks on climate change action. It's essential receipts opportunity to make Victoria a national leader. So it'll be at Friends of the Earth, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. It's on Facebook. Mm. Thursday, 11th of May, there's a community meeting. No development of toxic toxic site in Faulkner. And 7 p.m. at the Senior Citizens Centre, 77 Dukes Road, Faulkner, near the Faulkner Leisure Centre. Initiated by the Moorland Councillor Sue Bolton. And you can email Sue on sbolton at moorland.vic.gov.au and you can call her on 0417-583-664. There's another protest as part of the um, Stop Adani campaign, although initiated by Client Action Moorland. Um, Protest Moorland says no to to Adani, um, which will be a protest outside the Coburg Westpac branch. they, so um, the West, um, the Wills Labor MP Peter Cahill has been invited to join in his opposition um, to voice his opposition to the Ghani coal mine. Um, but if he does not come, um, then we will be um, then the, we will march to his office, which is just a short walk from the Westpac um, office. And there will be a film screening at, of, um, by um, Red, hosted by Green Left Weekly, "Do Not Resist," which is an account of the increasing use of military weapons and tactics by local. Local law enforcement in the United States, counterposed with counterpointed with civil unrest in Ferguson. Um, that will be at 6:30 with meal from 6 p.m. at the Resistance Centre, level five of the 407 Swanson Street. Um, now, this is something that's not in the calendar, but there will also be a protest um, uh, in support of Palestinian rights. Um, that will be at 5:30 p.m. Um, on that Friday, May 12th. Um, I think it's outside the State Library or near Federation Square. I'm not completely sure about 100% about the details. And there's also a um, rally coming up on the 17th of May, which is two Wednesdays from next Wednesday, or the Wednesday after that one, actually. Um, It's about making education free. Um, No cuts to welfare. It's at the State Library at 2 p.m. It's organised by the National Union of Students. And another one on the same day, it's Feminism in the Pub, Sexism at Work. Speaker Sally McManus, who's the new ACTU secretary, it's at 6.30 p.m. The Bull and Bar Tavern, 347 Flinders Lane in the city. Saturday, the 20th of May, we have the Canberra National Refugee Rights Conference and the full, full program is on the web, obviously. 
and the conference uh, on on that day is also is anti conscription campaign, and 200. The the 2017 is is a year is is the hundredth anniversary of the second of two referendums on conscription. In 1917, in the midst of the war, Australian anti-conscription campaigners succeeded in defending or defeating um, the introduction of conspiracy conscription by an even greater margin. So that would be on at um, 33 Saxon Street, Brunswick, Brunswick-Hoburg. It's anti-conscription commemoration campaign, and obviously it's on Facebook, is between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. And there's one other rally, uh, Tal Turnbull it's called, Marriage Equality Now, No More Stalling on LGBTI Rights, No More Kowtowing to the Right-Wing Members of the Liberal Party uh, Backbenchers. It's time for Turnbull to drop the plebiscite now free vote. It's at 1 p.m. It's the State Library, Swanson Street, and again, it's on Facebook. So let's have a quick break while we're waiting for the interview. Frucia is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377. We have on the line um, the next person for interview. And um, Jacob's going to introduce him. Yep, we have Brian Snowden on the line, who is um, a member of the community um, who is currently part of this campaign against the development of a toxic site in Faulkner. Um, good morning, Brian. Good morning. Uh, yeah, so I guess for listeners' information, what can you tell us about um, this toxic site um, in Faulkner that is going to be the subject of uh, development? This uh, site was operated by a company called New Farm between the years of roughly 1958 or so to about 1981. Uh, New Farm were, is, still is, a subsidiary of Monsanto. Um, the ki- kinds of chemicals that they manufactured on the site during the decades that the New Farm company operated there included dioxins, that's the general heading, DDT, Mm. Toluline-based emulsifiers, concentrate, phenoacetic acid herbicides, 2,4-D, 2,4-5-T, esters, 
dichlorophenol, trichlorophenol, arsenic-based sheep dips, ben and benzene offshoots, and all these chemicals were highly toxic, highly carcinogenic, and heavy traces of them were found saturated at the New Farm site after the, the company evacuated. There was a clean-up done at the end. Uh, it took another 18 years to get the site cleaned up or what sort of what was done as a, a clean-up, which wasn't totally uh, complete, completed. It was, it was so contaminated, contaminated that the EPA and their, their contractor just threw their hands in the air and decided to dig out a certain amount of of soil, particularly from the worst spots that were contaminated, and just cover it with a clay cap. Um, in recent times, the this is the the uh, site has been divided in two, and it had multiple owners who all transgressed the laws affecting this uh, toxic site. You know, which the clay cap's not to be touched, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And now um, there's an application into the Moreland Council to redevelop this site with two warehouses on, on it. Now, this, this uh, whole thing, um, is it being approved by the state government or purely by the council? It's, the state government has no input into this at this present time. Uh, I'm trying to get them on side. Uh, I went to the EPA and asked for a complete new audit. Uh, uh, to be done on this property because there is a development application in with the Moreland Council. So it's effectively the council who are dealing with this and there's a lot of amnesia, a lot of, a lot, a lot of these sites, which are, of which there are many around Melbourne, just go under the radar uh, and some, some people, some of the older residents in these areas, like Faulkner, know about these sites and all the new people into these councils, you know, no, nothing, and there's no history, and there's a lot of naysayers and a lot of what might be called toxic site deniers, like climate deniers, and so it's a serious problem. Um, at this point, we have, have, have got wind that this might actually get approved. It's mm. a very serious problem. I have a question. Um, this is a more of a, a bit of a political question. What is the kind of um, motivation of the the developers who are wanting to build these warehouses on this um, toxic site? We don't know. Uh, I'm, we're not even sure who owns the property at this point. Uh, we believe that the person who occupies it is simply leasing it. He's a uh, a roadworks. You know, does road work. She's a um, earth-moving sort of person. He's got heavy machinery on the place all the time, on and off. And uh, if that hasn't um, degraded um, and uh, eroded the, the clay cap, I don't know what would. Um, so the council sort of have virtually not policed this thing all along. Um, the guy has already transgressed back in 2006 when he dug it up and put an illegal concrete pad into the place and at the time there was all this, the stench and foul fumes and uh, some of which are vol uh, highly volatile and uh, were let off again and the council just didn't do anything. They stopped him from going further but they, you know, there are statutes in the law that says he should have had a substantial fine. Well, that was never applied. So the council... Yeah, like a lot of councils, the Moreland Council in recent times has had, um, you know, the, the planning department there has been renamed as the Department of Planning and Economic Development. Well, we know what takes precedence 
economic development mm. uh, and in spite of all the residents' concerns about all sorts of things. We've got other problems in the street with heavy vehicles coming and this is going to ensure that there are more heavy vehicles like semi-trailers in a suburban street that wasn't built to take them. Yeah. And um, it is a residential area where this... Um, it's a, a high, it's is. mostly a residential area. There's just a small strip of industrial along the edge of McBride Street, which is right down the end of Faulkner, the back of Faulkner, which is off the Hume Highway to, to the east. And that, re, that um, industrial block, just a strip between two streets, effectively two streets that run out to the, high, to the Hume Highway, that backs on to the Merry Creek. Mm. Now, when, the, when New Farm was operating in, uh, um, on the, this site, they let off. They had an open drain that ran into the creek and they, they fouled the creek and um, they actually defoliated everything behind there for about a kilometre. Also, they ran all their stuff into the sewer with, with the stuff they didn't run into. So there's, there were major concerns and the, the residents still have major concerns here, but there's a lot of blindsiding, duck shoving, um, a lot of naysayers, and there's a real war on here about this. There's something similar happening in Altona at the, as we speak. Uh, the Altona um, Council have had to deal with an ex-Dow chemical site, mm. which produced the same sorts of chemicals that New Farm produced and still produces to some degree. And that's having a proper clean-up. Uh, but the Moreland Council... Uh, exceedingly difficult to deal with. Um, the state ombudsman has, has listed them as the most um, ineffective council of getting back to people, um, of dealing with their ratepayers and residents. Uh, so we've got major problems. Do you ha have you actually met with the council officers? I, I have. Said? I have. And yeah. what what are they saying? I had saying? one meeting just after um, this. Uh, within a week of this, this application being put in, prior to anyone putting in uh, objections, of which we put in major objections, pretty well everyone along the street, uh, and they, you know, they were, again, duck-shoving and doing all sorts of things. They were supposed to have notified people by mail. One person got a letter. They said they sent 20 letters out. You know, it's just... That was completely a lie. Uh, they said they were going to send out another batch. Well, no one's received any mm. any more letters. Um, so anyway, since the meeting, um, where they were warned uh, about dealing with this problem, otherwise it would have serious ramifications for everyone, including the, the employees at the council and the planning department. Um, we've just put in a lot of a hell of a lot of um, applications, uh, uh, objections to this, and we've been consciousness raising around the area, uh, and have got a lot of people on board now. But um, at this point, I don't like our chances. I think this is just going to be fudged again, and development's going to be allowed. The place will be probably dug up again, and with all the ramifications that that implies. But if it's grinding down the Merrick Creek. Shouldn't it's the not now. It's yeah. not now, but it did when the when the company was uh, operating. And with the but new building, would that be um, revisited? What would what re be the, the pollution of the of the Merrick Creek well, when they start well, no, building? No, they won't be 
well, we don't know what they'll be doing. We don't know what's going in there, although we've had a whisper that it might be rented out to a, uh, a food factory which exists up the road. So imagine a food factory on uh, a highly contaminated site. By the, way, Green, by the way, Greenpeace lists this site as one of the most 10 toxic sites in the world. Mm. That's from a Greenpeace report in the 1990s. But then eight of the top ten polluted uh, sites in the world were all new farm sites or ex-new farm sites. Okay, how do you... Sorry. Sorry, no, you go on. No, I'm just going to say, how would you like um, people to support you in this campaign, which is obviously a very important one? In whatever way we can get support, people doing research... Bringing, dragging up evidence, uh, you know, there were there were there, around the, the time that New Farm operated, there were there were as a cancer cluster in this area of, of residents. You know, there were 18, 18 households affected. We we know that just about everyone who worked at that factory at the time died of some sort of cancer or, or another. Um, this we believe this site is still highly toxic. Uh, there was a, an audit done on the place by. Uh, a so-called accredited EPA inspector, but he was paid to do his audit, and it looks like a very cursory audit indeed when you read the application, the permit application for the development. Um, he just simply piggy, seems to have piggybacked on the back of everything that was done before. So we've called for the for all of his. Rep- his report in detail, which was never supplied in the in the planning permit, you know, where did he do the test? How deep did he dig? How large were the samples he took? Mm. Who, did, who did he take them to? Who who did the tests on them? How were they accredited? Were they, who were they attached to? Were they attached? Were they a private company? Were they attached to a university? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And we've done the same with the EPA, who said they've done another audit on this place. Well, we haven't seen anyone there doing anything. Mm. So there's some strange stuff going on. Yes. Uh, now, I have had the local newspaper, the Moreland Leader, onto this, and they've been questioning the EPA, uh, and we expect some re- response to our, our requests um, soon, and we hope it's soon, because they, they say they're going to be handing a, a report to the council before the end of the month. So time's very short, yes. And and it looks like you know uh, we we have a, a, a we have great fears that this is just going to be fudged again, and due process will not be adhered to. I okay. could be wrong, but yep. I hope I you know I, that's our fear. Yep. Okay, we've got a meeting coming up. Uh, we just announced it. That's coming up on the next Thursday, 11th, on the eleventh of May. Yes. At uh, uh, 77 Dukes Road, and let's that's hope... That's right. It's uh, senior citizens, senior citizens all in, in Dukes Road yep. on the 11th. Yeah. Okay, thank you 6:30, very much. 6.30 for 7 o'clock. Yep, sounds good. Thank you very much for that. Well, and thank you for, for, for listening to me. No, that's wonderful. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was... What's his first name? Brian Snowden. Brian Snowden <coughs> from the um, campaign against toxic site in uh, Faulkner. So that's a meeting on the 11th of May for people who are interested um, in this area. So we're coming to the end of the program. So we have to thank um, Brian Snowden, obviously, for being available for interview. 
and I'm thanking um, Callum Simpson. Yes, and um, uh, Sanders, Norm Sanders, who was available earlier this week for the interview. And um, hope you have a good week. And you've got, uh, if you have any uh, questions about any of the release, of course you can call 3CR, or you can look, you can listen to the program on podcast um, uh, in in on the web. Uh, on it's available on on um, AM and of course digital. Thanks for listening, and we shall make way for BZE Beyond Zero Emissions. Yes, <laughs> thanks. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing, and this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that. Yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now?